0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Medieval Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sean Field, Professor of History at the University of Vermont, to talk about his new book, A Female Apostle in Medieval Italy, The Life of Clare of Mimini, out this year, 2023, with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hi Sean. how are you today?
0: I'm doing very well, Yana. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing?
1: Uh, you know what? Also really good. Things are great. It's uh it's, it's spring. It's nice. My semester's coming to an end. Just uh going to Italy in a couple months. Things are good.
0: What could be yeah. better?
1: What could be better? Yeah, and how about you? How's uh has Vermont? Vermont?
0: good. Yeah, it's actually sunny out today, which is a rarity in the spring in Vermont. So everybody's cheery and we're looking forward to spring arriving here, you know, sometime in the next two or three months, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you'll have your couple weeks of summer. It'll be brilliant. Hey, um, so I mentioned your affiliation. I neglected a very important point, which is you are also, as of not too long ago, a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America. Congratulations.
0: Well, thanks very much. It's a really a nice honor and quite a surprise. And, you know, every, every now and then you get a little bit of recognition in our, in our field and you gotta soak it up while you can, because it doesn't come too often.
1: Right No, that's wonderful. Yeah, it, um, I gotta tell you, it's when I, you know, you, when our, we have some mutual friends uh, who are in the medieval academy. It's really nice to know that sometimes the meritocracy actually <laughs> rewards merit. So, yay! Well,
0: that's nice of you to say, Yana. <laughs> let's let's hope it's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, wonderful. Congratulations. All right. So uh, let's turn to Claire. Um, Who is this Claire of Rimini creature about about whom you write?
0: Well, Claire is a really fascinating medieval woman who was born about the year 1260 in the Italian town of, of Rimini. She has a really quite a controversial and interesting life. I'll try to just encapsulate it for you quickly and we can go from there. As mm-hmm. so I said, she was born about 1260 to a family from the maybe the lower urban nobility. And in the kind of topsy-turvy political world of Italy, her, her family is exiled. And while she's still young, and um, so she has a kind of a difficult childhood. Her, her mother dies when she's quite young. She uh, is married off to, uh, you know, probably her family arranged her marriage when she's when she's young. Uh, her first husband dies, she gets married again, probably this time more for, for her own choice and, and for love or romance or something of the sort. Uh, but as I said in there, her family was exiled. And then when they come back to Rimini, her father is executed. And so eventually, she uh, is twice widowed and orphaned, and uh, has to make interesting choices for herself. And she ends up, you know, rejecting this this life of of marriage and and as at least as the hagiographer describes her of, of luxury and fine foods and nice clothes, and instead adopts this life of, of penance, and ends up living in a little single cell without a roof that's in the the old Roman walls of the city of. So she's one of these these 13th century women that is outside any real religious structure. She's not a nun. She's not even a member of some kind of established informal community, just this solitary kind of figure adopting this very ardent Christian piety and devoting herself to helping the poor and wandering around the streets of Rimini, gathering alms and uh being really a, quite a controversial figure, like so controversial that at one point she is accused of heresy by preachers in Rimini from the pulpit. They they call her out by name and say she's possessed by a demon and she's leading the women of the town astray and her, her humility is all a kind of a false guise and really she's somebody that the, the husbands of town should be making sure that their wives don't, don't associate with. But eventually she seems to have gotten through this episode And eventually starts to gather a community of women around her, kind of like-minded women. And she has to go through this process of transforming herself from this lone controversial figure to somebody who's leading an informal but a community of women around her. She's clearly uh, not shy about teaching in public. Preaching, we would probably say, although that, that word isn't like used by our contemporaries. Uh, she travels. She goes on pilgrimage to, to Assisi, leading a group of, of women. She has visions. She battles with demons. In some ways, she is just a great encapsulation of some of the most um, controversial, interesting, fascinating things that women on the edges of Christian communities in, in medieval Italy were, were doing. And to top it all off, uh, she's remained really very, very little known. And so it's a, it's a new uh, life to study, a new example to bring forth, and a, a really like fascinating, controversial kind of figure to study. So how did you first meet her? Well, that is a great question. So this book is a collaboration between myself. And Jacques Dalaran, who is one of the the great medieval historians in the world and one of France's great medievalists, and Valerio Capozzo, who, as you can tell from his name, is Italian, but who who teaches in the United States at the University of Mississippi. And so the path to this book is that uh, Jacques Dalaran is really the the great world's expert on Claire of Rimini because he's the one who kind of recovered her story in the 1990s and produced a critical edition of the 14th century life that was written about her, and then wrote a little bit more accessible book in French that was published in 1999. So he's, he's the figure that had had really rediscovered Claire and, and brought her forth to to modern scholarship. And I've worked with Jacques on a number of other other projects. He's a, he's a fantastic scholar and uh, also an extremely nice guy, a great guy to work with, and I suggested to him, I think maybe just before the pandemic hit, that it was really a shame that Clara Rimini wasn't better known. That even even in Italy and, and France, she hadn't really taken hold. But certainly the United States, where there's a lot of interest in these kinds of interesting medieval women, she just had, you know kind of stayed beneath the radar. And we should do a little book that would. Translate her life into English and introduce her to American and anglophone audiences, and uh, he liked the idea, and so we ended up working on it with Valerio, uh, really across the, the the heart of the pandemic times when everybody was stuck in their own rooms, and we were doing this this work, you know, across the Atlantic by, by working on screens together. Uh, it made made the time go by a little little more quickly there during the during the pandemic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. You know, have, there there are people who did these wonderful pandemic projects and they are much happier humans. Uh, it, it's very funny. Uh, good thing. All right. So um, I want to talk about this book and like what it is. So the first thing, it's a translation and edition of La Vita della Bieta Chiara da Vimeno, la quale, for example, a tuctile le donne Uh, English, the life of the blessed Claire of Rimini, who was an example for all vain ladies. It's brilliant title. Um, So was it in need of a new translation?
0: Is that what happened here? That that was the origin. So the text itself, and we could talk about this process if you want, but it was written in Italian in probably the 1320s originally. So it's probably the earliest saint's life that we know of written directly in Italian rather than written, written in, in Latin and then translated into Italian. So that's one of the things that was interesting about it and my original thought was pretty standard pretty straightforward as hey jacques let's translate this life into english it's never been translated into english it's never even been fully translated into french or any other language let's let's do a little english translation and we'll do the kind of standard thing we'll you know write up a little a little introduction and we'll have a nice little book that'll be great for classrooms or for interested readers And Jacques actually came back with a more interesting proposal, which resulted in the the book that that we're talking about here. He said, "Uh, yeah, sure, but that's been done so many times before. Let's do something a little different. And his proposal was, let's imagine a new format for a book like this, where what we'll do is we'll just translate the first chapter of the life and then we'll give our, like, our commentary on the, the issues that this first chapter opens up. And we'll think of it as a way of introducing students and readers, not just to this text, even though the text itself is super interesting, but to the whole wider world that, that Claire inhabited. So the text is divided into 12 chapters and an epilogue. So the way the book is set up, is there's a very short little introduction to the book. We wanted to have a one-page introduction to the book and that the press eventually said, well, we, we get what you're doing, but let's let's be a little more realistic. Let's have like a five-page introduction to tell the readers what's going on here, but a very short introduction to the book. And then you jump right into chapter one of the primary source text uh, translated to English. And then, you know, a couple of pages of our commentary helping readers understand what's going on there. And then you move to chapter two of the primary source text and our commentary follows chapter two. So it's it's a different organization for a book it's a different way of trying to use a primary source text and translation to, to open up a whole medieval world and so far it seems to be getting good reaction people seem to find that it's it's interesting i've had some colleagues saying hey i want to do that with my my next translation project and uh, you know we'll see over over the next few years how it how it works and what people think but it certainly was was an interesting to try to reimagine this kind of format and to see how it worked out and what kind of possibilities it, it could open up, so we're pretty happy with it.
1: That is so cool. I, I love that. I did a translation and I did the thing. I translated the thing, and we have a little introduction. But it, it that you did a micro history as well as a translation.
0: That's what we we're that's what we we're going for, you know. And um, the way Jacques put it, I thought this was kind of powerful. He said, "Well, what if you were, what if you were gonna?" Lecture on or explain a medieval painting to somebody, like you're talking about a painting by Giotto or something. Like, you wouldn't have the painting in a back room and then talk to people for a half an hour. And then when you're done talking to them, then bring the painting out. Like, you would put the painting in front of them right away, start talking immediately about what you see there. And so, why not do the same thing? Like, put the text in front of readers right away, let them get the excitement of it, the interest of it. Don't make them fight through a long introduction, you know, before they get to that. Like, that's not what they came for. That's not what they paid money for. Like, like, give them the exciting stuff first. Give them the dessert first and we'll, you know, we'll explain it to you to you afterwards. Yeah, well, and that's how you would teach it too. If you were teaching this, you would read yeah. the text
1: and you'd read some of it and then you'd riff on it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a really it's, good tool.
0: Yeah, and so the book isn't intended only for students by any means, but certainly we're, we're thinking about students, but also, you know, other readers that, you know, might not be experts in medieval Italy and certainly aren't going to read a, a text in medieval Italian. But that are interested in this this world and the life of somebody like Claire, but also just in a wider sense. Like they don't necessarily want to really like a specialized, detailed study of this text. They want to imagine themselves into this world and like picture what it was like to be Claire in Rimini in, in the 13th and 14th century. And, you know, just trying to, to imagine what these new possibilities could be for, for a, little bit, a little bit of a different format.
1: Yeah. It's really relatable as well. I think it's perfect. You know, this is the kind of book that our listeners should, should read. They shouldn't just listen to this interview. They should go buy the book, very affordable FYI and like, and read it because it it is pitched in this, in a way that is comprehensible and it's fun. It's fun to read.
0: Yeah. Well, it's nice for you to say that we definitely were hoping for a, you know, pretty lively book, definitely mm-hmm. trying to aim at readership of, people who didn't have to have any previous knowledge. And, you know, even though, you know, people like like Jacques is one of, the, like I said, one of the greatest scholars in the world for, for medieval Italy and Valerio is, is a specialist on Dante and uh, Boccaccio and 14th century Italian literature, you know, this was a moment to try to step back a little bit and think about, like, in a collaborative way, like, what do we have to share with a, a wider readership? that, you know, we want to get our technical details right. We want to be accurate. We want to, you know, be the best scholars we can, but we want a book that's going to be readable and accessible.
1: You know, it, it, you, you, su- you succeeded, but you de- started, you, you kind of set yourself up to win already because she's <laughs> fascinating, right? Yeah. So was, you know, like, as you noted, possibly the first um, Hagiography hey, in Italian um, there are there's some other things you noted that are very special about this particular text. What do yeah. you to
0: tell us? Well, one of the other things that is particularly unusual is that as best we can tell, and as the, the argument that we make, is that it was probably written before Claire died. So we don't actually know the exact date of her death. We don't even know really the exact circumstances of her death precisely because it is not mentioned in the text. She must have died in the 1320s, but the text gives every indication of having been written maybe while she while she seems to be perhaps in her last illness or she's visibly kind of declining and everybody around her feels that she's reaching the end of her life. Uh, but written before she actually dies, which is quite unusual. there are other examples in, in medieval hagiography, but they're few and far between Most of the time a saint's life is written once the saint is you know safely dead and preferably after at least a little bit of time has gone by and miracles have begun to appear at their tomb which proves their their sanctity and so this really isn't an, an out of the ordinary kind of text in, not only the fact that it was written in Italian, but in the, the context, the dynamic in which it was written. So it does, it opens up some interesting kind of, of questions and analytic possibilities that that are pretty special to this, to this case.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea that it's written while she's still alive is fascinating. You make a pretty good case for that. But uh, also just with people who know her, right? So as a you know so you're getting really close regardless you know
0: yeah and so we we don't know the name of the author we argue that it's almost certainly a franciscan someone very close to claire you know very likely her confessor that's not for sure but that's the most most likely dynamic and so we have this this franciscan who's writing about her life and very definitely gathering testimony from the women around her. So in a sense, you could think of it as a collaboration. Like these are the women who knew her. It seems he also was able to talk to her biological sister who's still alive. So you could kind of, you can recreate the process by which he's gathering testimony and then putting it together into this, this life and the way he like sifts through the different memories of, of the women around her. So you can, Think of it as a kind of an interesting, multi-layered, multi-stage process of, of collaboration and compiling of the text itself in the 14th century, which is kind of a nice kind of meta way to think about, you know, then 700 years later, we're collaborating and, you know, putting putting our own stamp on, on the book itself.
1: Right. Yeah. You're now part of her history. Um, yeah. And I, I also think it's so nice, you know, a lot of what we get from our saints first, or, you know, sometimes it's absolute myth. It's so far away. Her geography, you know, is often written about people who've been dead for hundreds of years. Or, you know, I'm thinking about like Bernard of Clairvaux, where they kind of had to wait for anyone who'd known him to die before anyone could say anything nice about him. You know, but this is just right there. These people who really knew her. And it's a very it, it, it adds Um, a new understanding. If if you are
0: a specialist or you care about these things, you're going to understand
1: hagiography differently.
0: Yeah. And this particular hagiographer seems to have had a strategy. It it seems to have been a self-conscious strategy, though, you know, maybe not. Maybe it was just sort of what he arrived at. But he seems to have made the decision that when writing about what was clearly a very controversial woman a woman who in her real life as she walked through the streets of Rimini she had supporters but also detractors she had people who thought she was a saint but other people who thought she was a heretic that he made the decision to put all this controversy out in the open like put it right into the text and then try to soften it explain it contextualize it you know to to acknowledge how controversial she was and then try to like contain that in in his own text. So he could for example have made different kinds of rhetorical choices. He could have just remained silent about some of the things that that got her in trouble. Like you ask yourself uh, you get to, I think it's chapter six, is a the long detailed chapter about the accusations of heresy. Why put that in there at all? Like as a hagiographer, hey, why not just be silent about that? Why not not mention it? Or if you really felt like you had to mention it, why not be much less direct, just a little hint or something between the lines that she encountered some some opposition? Instead, he just puts it right out there and hammers home how preachers from the pulpit in Rimini are excoriating her, are calling her a heretic or saying she's possessed by a demon. And I think we think that he he adopted this, the strategy of like acknowledging that and then trying to contain that episode by putting it within like between two other episodes that, that show how God actually favored her and God actually brought it about that that episode, you know, would, would pass over and she would, come to be seen as, as more of a saintly figure. And, you know, if, if we're right about thinking that he's doing this self-consciously, it may be related to the fact that he's writing while she's still alive. Everybody who's going to read this life in the in the short term knows who she was and has not forgotten these things and saw her in the streets and knew exactly what happened. And it probably seemed like it just wouldn't work to like skip, skip over these things. So the point being that we end up with a text which is really fascinating to to read 700 years later precisely because of those those strategies or those decisions to lay all her most controversial elements right out there in the open you know in some ways as a saint's life it means you know maybe in a certain way it didn't really work like as as a potential saint she uh clearly raises a lot of problems, but as a historical document that lets us see some of the realities of what's going on, it's fabulous yeah, very cool uh absolutely, you know, and then there's all this stuff about her
1: uh that's just so unique, No, i mean like she's not uh, unique isn't the right word, but notable, worth talking about, so just uh, there's a few of these things I really want to talk about um so just uh let's start talking about the second chapter. The part where she goes from being a wealthy wife with all of the possible comforts uh, the era could offer, and then becomes this kind of fiercely devoted, really ascetic nun. Um, mm-hmm. is so, uh, what is so? First of all, I think we want to talk about what how this is explained. And then, kind of, what you have to offer. So, what what does our uh, the our, our author tell her tell
0: us about her decisions and how this happened? Yeah. So, so, some of the ways that he describes this process um, seem you know fairly expected and, and the kind of things that you might you might find in other sorts of saint lives. But, but in some ways, it's a little unusual. So, first of all, it, it's relatively unusual. Not as unusual by this time as it would have been a few centuries earlier. But it's relatively unusual to find someone being written about, particularly a woman. Being written about as a saint when she has been married, when she's been married twice, in fact. So, you know, virginity is often a a sort of a a starting point for the idea of, of holiness or sanctity, particularly for women in the Middle Ages. And Claire has been married not once, but twice. And so the the hagiographer is, you know, rhetorically stressing how much she wallowed in the the sinfulness of luxurious living and you know more or less the implication is that she had a, a healthy enjoyable sex life with her second husband and he stresses how they had, you know, lots of nice food and nice clothes and you know he's really piling it on in order to make the conversion process more more dramatic. But basically he describes even before her her second husband is is dead that uh, she has a, a vision in the Franciscan Church of Rimini, and the Virgin Mary appears to her, and basically uses some pretty straightforward, like logic and rhetoric, to say, you know, why are you so invested in this earthly husband and all these these nice things that you can enjoy on Earth when they're going to be fleeting and transitory, and they'll they'll go away very quickly. Uh, and Claire begins this process of turning away from, from the world towards this life of penance, even before her second husband dies. And then conveniently enough, he dies shortly thereafter, and she's, she's left as a widow and with, you know, with the, the, the chance to fully leave the world behind, since that's what she wants to do.
1: But she didn't have to fully leave the world behind, right? I mean, I I think probably when people conceive of the medieval period, they imagine she could only be a nun, but she didn't have to only be a nun. She could have done other things.
0: It's true, particularly as a respectable widow. And her family had certainly come from a certain amount of uh, comfort and and social status. Um, And shortly after this, you know, I mentioned that her, her father had already been executed, but she has a surviving older brother who is also exiled and she goes to join him in the not too far away town of Urbino. And so, yeah, she, she could have had the option of maybe living with her, her brother, or having, her, allowing her brother to, you know, provide for her in, in some way. And clearly that's not what she wants. So there, there is this, this move towards penance, which for sure you can find in, in many, many saints lives, but her vision of what she wants to do is, is definitely quirkier. So first in, in Urbino, she ends up, um, associating herself closely with a, a particular canon of the cathedral at Urbino, who apparently she confesses to and she has a spiritual relationship to, and that the hagiographer describes her as like so invested in penance that she's constantly crying and constantly wailing and and really creating a bit of a nuisance for herself so that the her neighbors, including the canons, the churchmen of the Cathedral of Urbino, basically tell her, You have to shut up or leave. Like we can't take all of your your penitential wailing Anymore, and so she agrees to, to calm down a little bit. But then, when when she and her brother return to to Rimini, that's when she adopts this this much more this unexpected life of just finding this this little. It's described as a little cell without a roof in the old half ruined Roman walls of Rimini. So, you know exactly how should we picture this? You know, it's a little unclear, but you know, just a, a small little room, and it's very clear. Like that when the rain comes down, she gets soaking wet. Like it's not even really a uh, you know a dwelling. It's just like a little little square that she's kind of squatting in. And she's making this into her into her home. And uh, the the hagiographer hey, uses a really interesting phrase that what she was seeking and what she finds here first is a room of her own. And of course it's a fascinating phrase for modern audiences because we go immediately to Virginia Woolf. and you know obviously the temptation to see somebody like Claire as, as though she's a sort of proto-modern feminist is, is probably to avoid it. You know, she wouldn't have understood Virginia Woolf if she could have met Virginia Woolf. But it's not entirely anachronistic to say that she clearly wants some kind of autonomy. She doesn't want to live with her brother. She doesn't want to become a nun. She wants this kind of ability to carve out this penitent life on, on her own terms. So in in that sense, she, she is definitely – Um, finding a way as a woman specifically to live this penitent life on her own terms, which I think is fascinating.
1: How common is this? Is this a thing that women are doing all over, finding
0: their own (laughs) ruthless huts
1: and (laughs) –
0: yeah. Well, it might sometimes almost seem like if you if you read a lot of saints' lives like I do and the, the world that we're in, Jana, it, you sometimes get the feeling you you read about Marjorie Kemp and you read about uh, Margarita of Cortona, and you get this feeling that these penitent women are just wandering through the streets of Italy and England, like crying at the top of their lungs. and, But but of course, really, these are, are, are very small numbers of people. And so much more common would have been either joining a nunnery or at least joining one of the the kind of informal communities that, you know, we might call them Beguine communities in Northern France or, or different names for them in, in Italian towns. But, you know, at least something with a little bit of structure. So a woman from what was originally, you know, an upper-class family who is living in a, a little cell without a roof is definitely unusual. This is definitely a strange path that she has chosen for herself. Right.
1: And then this... Her extreme what uh, harsh asceticism. Yeah. you talk about what that looks like for her.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, this is the kind of thing that you expect to find in um, saints' lives. and particularly, you know there's been a lot of great scholarship on this, uh, particularly when male authors write about female saints. They have a tendency to really try to demonstrate sanctity by the extent to which these women's bodies are put through various kinds of ascetic behaviors and, and suffering, having often to do with denying themselves food with, you know, physically making sure that they never feel comfortable. They, they might wear hair shirts, like something that means that your skin is always constantly painful and itching or denying themselves sleep. And this, this author definitely, you know, fully embraces this kind of rhetoric of showing Claire, embracing like a kind of penance, which isn't just interior, but definitely involves a lot of bodily suffering and particularly around the, the idea of food. There's a, a great moment that kind of shows the way this text tends to, you know, it, it does embrace themes that you find in lots of saints lives, but it always seems to take them one step further. And there's this scene where she's, she's feeling like a guilt for all the, the nice food that she ate back when she was a married woman and living a comfortable life. And, she uh, has one of her female companions go and get her a, a toad and she roasts up this toad and she chops it up and she eats it as disgusting as this is like to cure her of any like lingering desire to have nice, nice food. So it's, it's a really graphic example that this hagiographer is is giving us uh, to the, the lengths to which she's going to break herself of this, the habits of you know enjoying physical comforts in the world.
1: But so we've got this trope that we all know that like female embodied, like sanctity has to be embodied in females, like in females and like women and, you know, women are because female bodies are more problematic. So, okay, we've got, we've got this thing. And so, yeah, then she doesn't just starve herself. She doesn't just like, whatever, eat gruel. She is a toad. So the thing there, um, Kind of demonstrating also this idea of you know the it's an example for vain ladies we're going away with our vanity but she still has companions
0: who she has someone to go fetch her toad as well so how is her life then yeah and and eventually this is clearly a a real tension in the text and and I think we could say a real tension in her life the moment when she moves from being this this solitary penitent to wanting to build up a community around her. And again, you know, visions often play like key moments in texts like this. Uh, she receives a vision where she becomes clear that this is what God wants her to do. And there's apparently a, a like a, a landlord kind of a little house. Let's, you know, we can imagine it down the street from her cell. Um, the hagiographer hey, tells us his name. His name is Lapo. And he basically comes to her and offers to sell her his house so that she could have a place, not not so much for herself. It's not that she wants more comfort for herself, but a place that's big enough that the women who are starting to gravitate around her could start to form a community. And she clearly wants this, but she clearly feels overwhelmingly guilty about this. Like, is she betraying her penitent ideals by leaving her little, little cell behind? What about the whole question of buying this house? It's gonna cost money. Like she can beg for alms and, and build up a little bit of, of cash, like, but this is gonna be an all-cash real estate transaction. Like she is gonna be the owner of this house once she does this. So she's no longer gonna be living this kind of Franciscan-influenced life of rejecting money, of living in, in poverty. There are responsibilities that come with you know owning a house. And she clearly is torn by this. And so she does buy the house but then we get another one of these uh, scenes where the hagiographer describes as like immediately like retreating back to her to her cell and inflicting all this punishment on her body to like convince herself and like textually convince the reader that she's still as as absolutely like penitent as she had been before so you can see it's, it's a difficult moment for this like charismatic solitary figure to become the leader of, of a community it's not is not easy at all for her psychologically.
1: I mean, isn't there a cynical interpretation here of how she did everything exactly right, right, to get the power and that to 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 be able to exercise power in this particular way that works for women?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would call it cynical, though. You you certainly could, if we're thinking about her her real life and what the challenges were for her. Um, she is. I would agree with you. She ends up being quite effective. Like she is effectively able to build up this life where she's moved from this, you know, really marginal penitent in a cell to becoming a, a figure who has a certain kind of standing in the, in the community It's like the leader. These are the sisters of Claire. These are the the sisters, the community that's building up around her. And she clearly does find a way to make this happen. The hagiographer hey, writing about her clearly wants to emphasize how she remains as humble as ever and as penitent as ever. And that could be partly just a rhetorical effect of the hagiographer wanting to reassure us. But I tend to think that she really in her real life did have this, this real conflict in her, that she was not so like cynical that she's just trying to calculate, like I always wanted influence in this city. How can I get influence in this city? That, that it really is a difficult move for her psychologically to, Except uh, that she's going to have to handle money and buy a house, and that new responsibilities come with uh, being a leader of these of these women. Like you know, in some ways, it's the same kind of psychological battle that we see with much more famous figures, like say Francis of Assisi, who always struggles with what it means to be the leader of what eventually is thousands of brothers that are you know joining the Franciscan order, or Claire of Assisi, who is you know the abbess of her her own house of Franciscan women, but always struggles with what it means to be an abbess with authority over other sisters when all she ever wanted was humility and, and poverty. Like it's a dynamic that we, we see in other kind of charismatic religious leaders who end up being um, you know, in charge of other people who want to follow them. Uh, and have psychologically, that's a a big step for them to take. Right. Yeah,
1: and it's possible that um, I'm not surprised to hear you talking about it this way, because this is after reading the book, I've felt that her, I I didn't feel like it was some cynical ploy. Like I didn't feel like she was just the most cold person ever. Um, One other thing, though, that I just want to ask you about, because she read to me very much like Frances, but I know what happened with Francis's Claire. Like right? Francis's Claire has to go be very traditional and go locked away, and she seems to get to be more of a Francis
0: than a Claire. That is a really interesting point, Yana. I think it. I think it's fair to say that although Claire of Rimini was well aware of Claire of Assisi and and her tradition, she she associates with with poor Claire nuns. She's well aware of what that life is. But Claire is really, Claire of Rimini is really following the model of Francis, not the model of Claire of Assisi. She does not show any interest in becoming an enclosed nun. She wants to be out in the streets. She definitely teaches in public. The hagiographer is careful never to use the word preaching because, you know, the, the medieval church frowned on women preaching. But for all intents and purposes, she she preaches in public. She teaches in public. She works with the poor. She is really, you know, following that that mendicant model, that Franciscan model of being engaged out there in the streets, and the piazza of of. of Rimini so I, I think your observation is, is right on on target that she is really following Francis more than she's following Claire Assisi which is what makes it so interesting. It's what Claire Assisi's original dilemma was like how can a woman in medieval society, be able to do these things, the The church, the town fathers, the secular government, nobody is that keen on having women preaching in the streets, begging in the streets, wandering in the streets. Uh, and so it's a very, very delicate kind of balancing act for her. And it's definitely what makes her so controversial.
1: Well, I mean, and Clara of Assisi, to my knowledge, didn't have the problems that Clara of is going to run into, right? Like Clara of Assisi isn't there is no hint of heresy, as far as I remember. About
0: her, no, yeah, def- definitely not. Cla- Claire had her own kind of battles, and Claire Vezzi was equally fascinating, but in definitely in a different, a different kind of way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about heresy. What's Claire doing? What does it mean in this context? How does that yeah. read? About? Great, great
0: question. There's really not a strong sense that she's accused of some kind of doctrinal heresy that she's accused of advocating ideas that are clearly unacceptable to to the church basically what she seems to be being accused of is just rebelliousness insubordination causing problems for the town that the word that the, the preacher uses is he calls her a patterine. and it's the same word in italian basically as, as in modern english and this is a term that we you know went back to the 11th century and first referred to like lay people that were agitating on on behalf of a movement known as the Gregorian Reform, and were insisting on more more purity for the church. But by the, the 13th, 14th century, it's become an, in Italian kind of a, a catch-all word for a heretic, but, but like a heretic who is basically a rebel, just like a problem, somebody who doesn't obey the church. And so that's that's the term that's being thrown at her. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a loaded word that the hagiographer describes as he's trying to, you know, he's trying to give you a portrayal of what Claire is going through, through this, this year where she's being accused of heresy. And he says, the children of Rimini followed her through the streets, throwing stones at her saying, it's the Paterine. You picture these little Italian kids, like mocking her with the term Paterine and, you know, and like throwing stones at her, which, you know, obviously is is not funny if you're the one having stones thrown at you, but it's a little bit of a, of a comic scene in, in retrospect. And, you know, it's just this sense that when she's at the height of her controversy, these preachers who might have been, you know, more conservative Franciscans or could conceivably been Dominicans or or other preachers are just not happy with the influence of this woman who is not under anyone's control, not under church control, really. She's not married. Her husband is long dead. Her father is long dead. And clearly she thinks that she's on this path of holiness well what's she really doing? She's she's wandering through the streets, making a spectacle of herself, begging for alms, uh, presuming to, to teach lessons to people. And this is the problem. She is overstepping her, her position, her bounds, she is causing problems, and this is really what they're what they're accusing her of.
1: So um, to be clear, there's a gendered component here, right? Like, no question. We don't like women doing this.
0: Yeah, no, no question at all. And there's an interesting line in, that, in this chapter where at first the, the, the preacher who's, who's accusing her of all this, at least as he's quoted by the hagiographer, seems to be talking to everybody in Rimini. But by the time he's done, he concludes by saying, husbands, don't let your wives associate with her. So there's a very clear sense that this is a question of women causing problems and needing to be under control. Sure. To,
1: but also, I, not a lot of men
0: got away with that either.
1: Like this was this is borderline behavior regardless.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. So, you know, men wandering in the streets begging are, are not necessarily very welcome if they're not part of a, an established mendicant order. Franciscans or Dominicans doing that might have, have one thing. So that, that's a fair point that we, we shouldn't chalk everything up to, to gender all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's that. This is a story of this is a gender story, but I mean, like, this is just problematic behavior. You just don't want ranting, starving people in your streets necessarily.
0: Fair point, Yana. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, but no, gender. It's all. It's it's always gender, Sean. So um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, like talk a little bit more about her visions as well. So she has loads of visions. What are, is, are people having visions? But is this a normal thing?
0: Yeah. So obviously visionary culture is, is a big part of Christianity in the 13th and 14th century. People who are perceived as saints or having a particular holiness or a contact with, with God, um, not always, but often might report having some kind of... Um, moment where they they feel as though God is speaking to them or God has appeared to them or the Virgin Mary or a particular saint. So finding this kind of thing in the saint's life is certainly not unusual. And some of Claire's visions are, you know, more or less standard sort of things. I, I mentioned like her having a vision of the Virgin Mary where the Virgin Mary urges her to a life of penance. It's interesting, but not like, you know, out of Uh, You know, it's not a crazily out of order thing to find in in a saint's life. Um, Some of her visions are a little bit um, less expected. The most famous one, the one that we have on the cover for the book and the one that provides the, the best known artwork about Claire that was done just after her death, is this vision that she has of Jesus and John the Evangelist and John the Baptist and a whole choir of saints where Jesus shows her the wound in her side and holds out a a book with a biblical passage in it to her and basically is kind of acknowledging her prayers and her requests and, and really is signaling his approval for everything that, that she's doing. And obviously on, on a, on a podcast, you know, we can't look at this image here together. Um, but if you, if you buy the book, you can, you can look at it there. Um, and so this is, is the, the center of um, a beautiful a triptych that's painted for her community just after her death, where on the left wing of the triptych has the 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 uh, scene where the Magi come to visit the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus, and the center of the triptych has the crucifixion scene with with Francis of Assisi kind of down by the feet of of Jesus, and then the right panel of the the triptych uh, shows Claire and this vision and her receiving this this book from um, actually from John's the evangelist who is receiving it from. From, uh, from Jesus and it gives you a sense of like how uh, how effective apparently she must have been at conveying these these visions. So we know that she must have talked about it to her sisters who then report it to this hagiographer or maybe she reported it directly to the hagiographer uh, and then he writes it down in this life and then after her death it becomes the, the text that he's written down becomes the source for this this work of visual art. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting kind of circular process there and, you know, definitely gives us our our best visual clue to how she was seen at the time and how she was represented through these visions.
1: And I'm thinking about this dialectic of like this vision creating a vision, but this is a visual culture,
0: right? Yes.
1: So.
0: Yeah. and, And in fact... This is, a, you know, it's a little bit difficult to talk about this in detail when we just have our voices to describe these visual images. But uh, Jacques Dallaran, who I, I mentioned was the you know, the, the guy who really did the groundbreaking work on Claire. He actually demonstrated, as really fascinating, that the imagery from this vision seems to have been drawn from a particular church in Rimini it's the, the church of San Agostino uh, the Augustinian church in in Rimini where there's a brand new program of frescoes that were painted about 1318 and we can be pretty sure that Claire was in that church and she's probably looking at these paintings and she's probably meditating and then the, the images from these frescoes Seem to have informed then what she sees in this vision. So there's this long chain of like, you know, this painting's done in 1318 and Claire meditating on them and then her having this vision and then the vision being written down in her hagiography and then the text of the hagiography being used as the the starting point for the the paintings that are are made about her. It's really a fascinating chain of of images, visions, texts that that Jacques does a, a wonderful job of drawing out. And we try to explain that in the, chapter, was it chapter 11 or 12 of the book where this vision is, I think it's chapter 11 where this vision is related.
1: And a description of a vision is going to be this clue that says a lot more to somebody in, you know, 1320 or whatever than it says to us.
0: Right. Yeah, very possibly. Like it really takes some some drawing out for a modern audience to like try to explain what the the various images probably meant to Claire and to to an audience. So Fascinating process. And plus, it's just a beautiful triptych. There's vivid colors, beautiful gold painting. Made a nice ex- nice cover for the book. Like, you know. It's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'll need to go back to Remini. Um, and then she battles demons. Yeah. yeah. And this is again not unusual, at least not totally unusual for Saints' lives in the later Middle Ages. And you know, demons as a force that demonstrate that somebody who's seeking holiness, somebody who sees themselves as holy, somebody that is being portrayed as holy, when demons show up to attack them or tempt them, that's in a certain way like a proof that they really are holy. Like they are worth attacking. They're a, a high-value target for Satan, we we might say. And so it's it's not totally unusual to find that towards the end of this text, the hagiographer is describing demons besetting Claire. But it's a little bit, in a number of ways, like this text from the early 14th century sometimes feels like it's at the beginning of larger themes that are, are just developing. You're more likely as the you get to the end of the 14th century, early 15th century, to find that it's almost like required for a, a saint's life, particularly of women, to show them being like constantly under siege by demons and constantly questioning when they have visions, like asking themselves, uh, was this really a, a vision of, of saintly figures or angels or something sent by God? Or was this actually a delusion sent by demons like this sense that demons are ever more present in the, the imagination of late medieval people uh seems seems like a valid conclusion to draw and so this text from the early 14th century uh, is a little a little like ahead of its time a little precocious in like insisting on the role of demons in this in this portrayal of her sanctity
1: so tell me she's uh you, you seem convinced she's the real deal
0: yeah <laughs> The real deal in the sense that, uh, like, she really was a saintly figure, not deluded <laughs> yeah. by demons. and
1: Yeah, maybe that. A saintly f- figure, not deluded by demons,
0: probably d- directly connected to God. Yeah, I, you know, it's not for me to say whether she was directly connected to God, but I I have this strong feeling, and, you know, readers are, are perfectly... Uh, Welcome to come to their own conclusions, people who, you know, historians and editors have a a strong tendency to to become identified with the people that they're studying and, you know, either to love them or to sometimes to really hate them and to become kind of identified in that sense. But, you know, I I have the strong feeling that Claire was an extraordinary personality and did some extraordinary things, had a, a life that was very much out of the ordinary. And that's why she's been being written about in this text for us. And at the same time, as we study this extraordinary life, we, we do get a picture of everything that's going on around her and a little bit more of a sense of like the everyday life in an Italian city state that she's walking through. Even if she's so controversial, she does let us get little pictures of things like how were families organized, what was a father's authority or a husband's authority in a family, what were marriages like, you know, how did the justice system work in a, in a city state like Rimini, all these little, you know, contexts. We have to understand to to grasp her life. So it's a mix of the extraordinary and and the ordinary that we're hoping to bring out.
1: Yeah, she is. um, There's a devotion and purpose to her life that I find really impressive. Yeah, and I've we I wanted to talk about the things that I'm particularly into today, but there's you know there's something for everybody. Um, Really, you can just there are so many places that you talk about. And just like quotidian existence in medieval Italy in this way, you know, it's uh, pretty hard to find actually. It's really nice. So I have taken up way more than enough of your time. Uh, so I'll like, you know, just one more quick question. And this is an easy one. I hope it should be an easy one. So what are you working on next? What's next?
0: Huh. Well, uh, I've been working on a lot of things recently, but uh, the next thing that I'm starting, I'll actually be on sabbatical next year should be at the National Humanities Center in North Carolina. And I'm starting a book about female hagiographers, women writing lives of other women. So in this little chat we've had, we've been talking about some of these gender dynamics about men writing about women. And this is certainly not a field that's never been studied, but um, I want to get more deeply into it, open this up and think about what a text look like when female authors write about female saintly figures in the middle ages and kind of turn the tables on that gender dynamic. So I hope that's what I'm doing next.
1: That should be fun. Uh, And North Carolina, be a little, that should be a
0: nicer winter anyway. Hoping for a little warmer weather in the winter next year than we have here in Vermont.
1: Yeah, that sounds delightful, actually. I'm looking forward to the next work. All right. Thank
0: you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much for joining me. It has been wonderful. And I hope we talk again soon.
0: Looking forward to it, Yana. Thanks.